Hi, everyone. My name is Tom Pritchard, and welcome to the Marriage Champions podcast, where I talk with marriage champions about the habits, skills, and tools marriage champions can use to have and help others have great marriages and families. Today, my guest is Carrie Casey. Carrie has been a pastor, teacher, author, NFL football chaplain, and founder of Championship Fathering. Carrie, you've been one of the leaders in the church on the importance of fathering. But before we discuss uh, a man's role and responsibilities of a father and a husband, I want to ask you about being a chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. How did that come about? Wow. That was, I very seldom think about it, but I wish I could show you a huge portrait of Coach Tom Landry. And it has two tall Jones sacking a quarterback in the Super Bowl. And then you have Roger Dodger, Roger Staubach, who was one of the great leaders and still is within the sports community, but a great Christian man. But Coach Tom Landry was one of my greatest mentors. I can't believe I had the privilege to work with a person that when I was a young lad, I would watch him on black and white TV. And then the way it came about is Coach Landry was a board member nationally with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And then he was a local board member in Dallas. And when he became a Christian at 33, I believe it was, he hung his hat with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So they handled his speaking engagements and he could feel safe with them in terms of his way of sharing his faith. And so I played ball at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill football. And one of my teammates uh, was on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Dallas. Coach Landry was on the board. And Coach Landry had a vision for um, helping his athletes and sharing the gospel. And, he's, and he was saying, the players are changing now. The game is changing. There's more money. Um, the athletes are changing because of the money and all that. But then, too, even race-wise, uh, as far as trust and uh, teams coming together and reconciliation. And so he said, we need um, a chaplain as well as an urban director to work with the schools in Dallas in sharing the gospel of Christ through FCA. So uh, one of my teammates who was working there said, I know the guy that you need. And they're like, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, and this type of thing. So anyway, he told them about me. Coach Landry <laughs> did his research. I was getting ready to pastor this big, nice church with a few thousand members in Virginia. And I was going to go there and pastor and be there for 45 years and die and go to heaven. But Coach Landry called. He said, I heard of you and this type of thing. He said, could you come to Dallas and spend a week with you and your bride? and see what you think. And so when I went there, I couldn't believe how serious he was, how involved he was, and how many of his friends were donors and they were involved and in this was serious for them. So anyway, he said, if we hire you, are you gonna be committed? And I looked at him, I said, well, you're questioning my integrity, but I've watched you on TV for years and." He said, I don't know if we want to hire you or not. You're saying you watched me on TV for years and all of this. So we kind of laughed. But I was so amazed at how serious he was about Christ and the commitment of changing the culture 
within his team. And eventually, I have had the privilege to speak to every NFL team, uh, every team. I was in seminary in Boston, and the president, Dr. Harold Arkingay, who discipled Billy Graham, <laughs> and he called one day. Uh, we didn't have cell phones back then, but he called my little apartment in Mary Student Housing, and he said, I need you to come to my office. I have a question to ask you. So he invited me. I went to his office, and then eventually he said, I just want you to know the New England Patriots called, and they invited you to speak to their team. I was 23 years old, <laughs> and I'm asking him, how did they get my – he said, I do not know, but they called me the seminary, and they said they want you to speak to them. So I'm like, wow, I've seen people speak to my college teams and things of that nature. So anyway, I called one of my best friends in the world. His name was, he's with the Lord now, Dr. Danny Lotz. He was a dentist. And he used to always, Kerry, uh, we're glad you're in North Carolina. We're glad you're on our team. He would take me to get ice cream. He would see me at banquets, give my little testimony. I would hear him speak to our team at Carolina. He's a former great basketball player on the 1957 National Championship team that beat Wilt Chamberlain in Kansas in Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City. And he was a he's six foot eight, big, tall, handsome white gentleman. Eventually, he started taking me to his home. He had a beautiful bride, three, ch three children. We would have meals. I would babysit the kids and all this. But one night we were sitting there and I said, um, you almost, they had pictures around their home and a lot of books and all this. And I said, you almost really love Billy Graham. And I'm thinking that they're, they are um, major donors to the Graham Association. And they got pictures with him or something. But he said, and they busted out laughing. I'm like, why are y'all laughing? They said, oh, we didn't tell you, Carrie. But um, that's Ann's dad. And so Ann Graham Lotz was sitting there. She's a shy lady. Still is, but she can preach. But she said, um, I mean, he said, that's Ann's dad. And they were just laughing and all that. So eventually they introduced me to him. And eventually he loved me enough that he paid every dime of my seminary career to Gordon Conwell Seminary. Yeah, wow. it's just amazing. In oh, fact, the book here, Championship Fathering, and Tony Dungy wrote the foreword, who's a dear friend. But I usually read this before I speak it to audiences. And I said, here's why you all need to get my book. I can't take these back to my office. But on the back, it says, I first knew Kerry Casey as a young man <laughs> preparing, I always laugh, preparing to attend seminary and have always had the greatest admiration for him, he has a deep love for people and a desire to lead them, especially young men to Christ. I would highly recommend to you any book written by Kerry Casey. <laughs> and I always said, and he says, and if you don't get it, you might get struck by lightning. He didn't say that. But anyway, and I said, you all, that's Billy Graham. And people are like, what? Uh, he, that was personal money. That was not a scholarship. Wow, that's that's exciting. Yeah, uh, Landry was dear friends with him as well. I can't believe I get blessed even doing this uh, 
interview with you. I'm honored. Oh, well, thank you. Well, let's let's back up. Let's talk a bit about your your background, your family. Uh, you know, the family I'm sure impacted your life, your father. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me about your journey mm-hmm. and the influence your family had on your life. I do want to say this, and I would hope that you would share some of the t- statistics that you shared preceding this time of us coming on, because it's so true. Um, but tonight, 25 million kids will go to bed without their biological father in the home, as you look at the research, in the richest and most powerful country in the world. But I must say, I'm so very thankful. By the way, there are no perfect dads. My father was not perfect, but my father was there for my sister, who was a retired educator. My brother, state medical examiner in Virginia, Roanoke, Virginia. He's younger than me. My sister's older. But I'm so thankful that even when mom and dad struggle in their marriage, which everyone's going to go through tough times. And I tell people this as I counsel them right here in my study. I said, we stand at the altar, and I'm counseling couples here when they struggle and they come in to get the oil changed. And I said, we stood at the altar and we talked about, you promised to love them in sickness and in health, richer for poor, better for worse. Those six tenants, and they promised that. But then sometimes we get off track and we say, we don't want to be married. But I said, I'm finding out in my evening years that if you go through those six tenets and experience sickness, health, rich, poor, better, or for worse, you will have a great marriage. (laughs) Because you have to, like teams I've been on, you have to go You have to block and tackle in order to win the game. And that's what it takes. So I had a a marvelous dad who was not perfect, but I watched him open doors for mother. I watched him, how he handled his money. I watched him be faithful to the church and faithful to God. I watched him not matriculate at a college of higher learning, but because of his favorite book, Ecclesiastes, where he would tell my brother and I, we need to get to know the richest and the wisest king in the world besides Jesus. And he said, he would always tell us, there's nothing new under the sun. That's what Solomon would say. And then he would always tell us as well, don't ever forget Ecclesiastes 12 and 1. Remember thy creator in the days of your youth before the evil days draw nigh when you would say you have no pleasure in them. At 66, I'm understanding what he was saying. When he was saying, boys, you know, you can't have sex all the time. And my brother and I, like, we know daddy's brilliant, but he's missing it on this one because we were early teens. And he told us that. Because we were thinking what we heard about sex within a marriage that, heck no, we're going to have sex every day. But he taught us 
of what it was really all about. You can make love holding your bride's hand walking through the mall when you're sitting with your bride in church. That's making love. Making love is not just physical. But I watched how he and mom, even in their evening years, he still cherished her. He still loved her. They couldn't move as fast and things like that. I can't, like I used to, I used to run a 4-4 and a 40. Now, what am I saying? His father's name was Ralph Waldo Casey, I mean, Ralph Waldo Casey Sr. He was Ralph Waldo Casey Jr. And he had a twin brother, my dad did. But I always, I wish dad was living now because I'm like, why did your dad name you Junior? And his dad, his brother's name was uh, Walter. And my dad had an older brother named Gladwin. But he named my dad after him. And my dad wanted to name me Ralph Waldo Casey III. But my mother said, no, no, no. We're not going to leave this hospital naming this boy Ralph. <laughs> I'm glad she didn't. But anyway, he named all of us children. And my name is Carrie Walden Casey. Walden Pond Thoreau. Daddy was an avid reader and writer. I have all of his manuscripts. He never published a book, but he was a good dad. He was very basic, very common. And no perfect dads. But when a daddy is not there, a child is more um, likely to be poor, drop out of school, be involved in crime. Girls are more likely to be pregnant as a teenager. But just by a dad being in the home, there are no perfect dads, but just by a dad being in the home, those statistics flip-flop, believe it or not. Every child needs a father, grandfather, father figure. In essence, he was a great figure for me. He and Coach Tom Landry, believe it or not, they went to heaven on the same day, February the 12th, 2000. It was a sad day for me, but exciting because they never met on earth, but they were very much alike in their character. Coach Landry, Caucasian, daddy, African-American, but their values, their character. Both of them were World War II vets. Um, both of them were married to their brides for 50 years. Both of them were 75. And both of them went to be with the Lord on the same day. But their character, when I was with Tom Landry, Coach Landry, I could just feel my pop in the way he carried himself and vice versa. And so, but dad was a great figure. And believe it or not, he was a father figure to a number of my classmates that did not have a father. I had two classmates, great athletes, that their fathers back in the early 60s murdered their mothers. Very embarrassing. Uh, shameful. But I saw, and years later, they said, your dad used to tell us stuff. He used to talk to us about stuff. I said, when did he talk to you? When he would come and watch practice. And we would be on the sideline. He would just kind of make his way over while you're out there on the field, he was telling us stuff, how to carry ourselves, how to deal with that hurt and things like that. But anyway, I get to go and please forgive me. No, no, that's great. Well, what you talked about statistics on 
the absence of fathers, but what is it that makes having a father so important to, to a boy, but obviously also a daughter, but what is it that mm-hmm. they provide that you just can't, uh, mm-hmm. if it's absent, there's a, there's a, there's something that's missing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, going back to creation and not to go too deeply, but uh, in essence, in Genesis, in the beginning, and he talks about creation, but, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, you know, there in John chapter one. But we are the only creatures, men, fathers, that he gave us his name, father. He did not give that to a woman. And you have to have leadership in anything that you do. Pastors, head football coaches, basketball coaches, um, the smallest of families. If you, There has to be leadership. There has to be leadership. So, and I think of how in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6, to, answer, to help answer your question, the last verse of the Old Testament, God speaks there to Malachi. And Malachi writes, in essence, shares, God wants to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the father. Some uh, versions uh, of the Bible speak of to the parents. And I believe that as well, the parents. He made a man and a woman, a father and a mother. That's the way that he didn't just think it up. He knew that that needed to happen. They need the tenderness of a mother, of a father as well, but they needed the firmness and the leadership that a father brings. It's just like the touch of a mother in a home. Not saying a woman is the only one that cooks or washes dishes and does the domestic opportunities in the home. No, no, no. He wants us to work as a team. The team that will win, my son is chaplain for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And just to give an example, every NFL team is great, even teams that don't win a game, because they're the best at what they do. They're playing on the highest level that you can play on, excuse me, in terms of American football. But the teams that have leadership, and play their position, stay in their lane, and like each other, and sometimes love each other, that will be the team. The one that does that best will win the Super Bowl. Sometimes they may not have the best players at each position, but when you have that, and I watch my son's team, the Chiefs, and and he allows me to speak to him at times. I said, the only way that you all will not win the Super Bowl this year is if you get complacent and get lax and not carry out the responsibility of your head coach and your family's close. You all are talented enough. You all have the best quarterback in the NFL. Now, all the quarterbacks are great. Don't get me wrong. But the extracurricular of how he's talented, if he doesn't complete the pass with his right hand, he can throw it with his left And sometimes. But getting back to it, though, that leadership of a father, and a woman needs that and wants that just as much as a man does. Uh, being affirmed, being told she's beautiful, 
being told that she is an outstanding lady. She can be a great bride. And many people share with me at times uh, in scholarly settings. So, um, Dr. Casey, uh, why do you call your wife your bride? I said, because she's a bride. And some people ask me at times, this lady at the dry cleaners one day, I say, yeah, this is my bride's blouse. This is my bride's slacks here. She said, how long have you been married? I said, 44 years. She said, she's not a bride. And she said it like that. She's going to put me in my place to let me know. She ain't no bride anymore. You've been married 44 years. She's your wife. I said, yes, legally. She's my wife. Well, why do you call her your bride? I said, I must remind her of who she is. And if I don't do that, just to not to embarrass us or degrade it, but we're calling women another B word in 2021 that is not her title, but men call them something else. But I have to remind her of who she is or she may function in a role that she is not called to function in. And if you call your children, your children, and you don't call them negative names like some parents that have not been trained, that don't have the heart. My daddy, I talked to my brother just a few months ago. We talked about that. It's like, I asked my brother, I said, Corwin, his name's Corwin, C-O-R-W-I-N. I said, did daddy ever curse you? Did he ever talk down to you? He said, no, never did. I said, I'm just asking because he didn't do that with me either mm. or whatever. And I said, we did some dumb stuff. He said, I know. He said, but that's not how dad knew through God and the Holy Spirit how to speak to people. And I said, I've seen him speak to the poorest of poor, the most ignorant of people, and speak to them like they are a Rhodes Scholar. And you could see people, when I was a little boy, I could see people light up when my dad would talk to them, even when he had positions higher than them. Or he would go to other people's level in their scholarly discussion. He was very well read. So anyway, when I, in 1960, when I was like five years of age, I think it was um, African-American babies born out of wedlock. It was 25 to 30%. In 2021, it's at least 72% of babies born out of wedlock. Now, we have all this discussion about black, white, who's prejudiced, and all of this. But when it really gets down to it, it's not that so many people are prejudiced. It's that if you don't know who you are and the father's not there to give that family definition of who we are, and what we're going to do to win a championship. And it's very basic. It's in the Bible. It's various scriptures. And it talks about raising up the next generation in Psalm 78. And it talks about be sure and speak to the next generation in Psalm 78. I don't have it all memorized. But it said, even speak to the next generation yet to be born. So I'm preparing things that in the next 20, 30 years, when I go to glory, maybe I live longer, 
but the basic plays are in place for my children to run and the grandchildren to see it. And this is who the Casey's are. We don't have to argue about who's don't, who doesn't like us, who's different than us. Because God created red, yellow, black, and white with precious in the sight. So we have that foundation. It's not perfect. No family's perfect. I saw uh, my mom one time when dad was tempted. Some of his friends um, uh, that he worked with that were friends, not Christian friends, all of them, but they would drink alcohol. And my dad was tempted one time to just go hang out with these guys. And those guys wanted my dad to be with them, and he wanted to be with them. He would evangelize them, yes. But my mother, i never forget one Sunday, buddy, after church, these guys were going to hang out. And we had come home from church. We had dinner. <laughs> and, my, and these guys called my dad. Hey, come on. We're going to go and just kind of hang out. And so my dad was telling my mother what he was going to do. And she would call him Casey. That's our last name. Now, Casey, you know you don't need to go hang with these guys on Sunday or whatever. And then he said, oh, Sarah, I'm just going for a little while. Her name was Sarah. But then she said, Casey, you have a decision to make. I remember how she said it. Oh, yeah, I was walking. I can remember. I was walking down the hallway in the house. He was standing in the living room. She was standing in the kitchen door. And she said, you got a decision to make. And she just walked off. She didn't say anything else. And he's, oh, Sarah. He's talking to her like, it's your fault that I'm upset right now. But she respected him. She didn't go there with him. You got a decision to make. I don't have a decision, Casey. I can't tell you what to do. You're the head of this house. <laughs> and so he didn't go that day. And eventually, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, forgive me. No, no, that's fine. Um, no, go ahead, finish what you're going to say. And believe it or not, years later, I'm in college studying religion and speech at University of North Carolina. I come home for the holidays or summer vacation or whatever. We were sitting at a Waffle House, a good, great place to eat. I don't remember the last time I've eaten there. But I'm sitting with Dad. And his, one of his best buddies at work had died. And we were discussing his death. This, in fact, this is one of the guys that was really tempting Dad to come and do some things with him. This guy died at 55 years of age. And we were talking and I said, dad, I know you're sad, but I was feeling a little puffed up. I'm majoring in religion, making good grades, playing football. I'm in college. Daddy, you've never been to college. I didn't say that to him, but it's kind of like I'm growing up. I have a scholarship. You don't have to pay for my school. I'm a good athlete. I play on TV. I was a little full of myself. But then I sat and told him, I'm like, Dad, well, God knew that Mr. Boyer was going to die at this time. And my dad looked at me. He said, you're right. And, yeah, God knew when he was going to die. But his death day, I don't think that was God's plan. And I'm like, he knew, Dad. God wanted him to. He said, no, God didn't want him to die at that time. 
the doctor told this gentleman, my dad's buddy, Mr. Boyer, the way things are in your body, you need to stop drinking. And if you keep drinking, you are going to die. And he said, son, my buddy didn't stop drinking. And he died. He rushed his death. And my dad was totally right. And me with all of my theological training and all of my Old Testament, New Testament, hermeneutical principles and how you preach sermons and all that. But daddy was totally right. I, I'm just amazed. He was my dad. And he had wisdom. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Carrie, we talked about you alluded to a man being a leader in the home. Let's kind of back up in terms of what is a man? Um, you know, whether you're in the home or you're a husband or a father or not, or you're a single man, how would you describe what a man is? I would view it as responsibility. I would also put in there the word justice. Now, a lot of people are throwing that word around these days, but we have a um, year verse that our family picks out every year. I usually pick it out and my four children and nine grandbabies and their spouses and my bride, we, we come to an agreement. Our year verse for this year is Micah chapter six and verse eight. And it talks about what does God require of you, Carrie Casey? What does he require of us? And it says, act justly. It's not, it's not rocket science. It says, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Justice, we try to put different definitions on it, but justice basically means do what's right. And even a non-Christian, the way God created us, you have a conscience. I really believe before a person pulls a trigger, before they, and I'm not saying people, God said don't drink alcohol, but before we do something, I really believe in whatever setting, he will give us enough wisdom, enough time for our conscience to tell us what we must do. I think the most ignorant of us, yes, I firmly believe that because I'm an example. It's, I, I, I have sin in my heart. I'm stained. Only people that were not, only person who was never stained of sin was Jesus Christ. He took our sin, but he was tempted like us, but he had the capacity not to sin because he was the perfect person that God sent to this world. But I don't want to uh, forget your question. But in essence, what I'm finding through my research, finding through living life in this urban community in Chicago and places I've been is that, and I hear men that have really fallen uh, a lot of times off the wagon and done some things. Wow, Pastor Casey, I wish I had a dad like you. Uh, I have the whitest of friends, the, the blackest of friends, the uh, uh, people that are Asian or whatever. I wish I could have met your father. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I wish he would give me great wisdom. 
I said, Daddy, I'm speaking here in town. He said, what are you doing in town? I said, I flew in. I, I didn't tell you. He was in the care center. He had Parkinson's. His hands would shake. He couldn't talk well. And then he would have, uh, uh, he couldn't walk. And so I came to his room bedside there at the uh, care center. And I said, um, you know, we spoke. And he said, what are you doing in town? I said, Daddy, I'm speaking. And I said, Dad, give me some wisdom. I said, I got tons of talks. I don't even need notes because I used to ask you, dad, how can that preacher get up there and speak like that and doesn't use a note and it's in order in this depth and it's what I need to hear. He said, you're called, son. He, I, but I said, give me some thought. And he said, he sat there in his hands and shaking and he goes, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Then he would look at me and smile and go, because that's a mouthful. But I think of responsibility to answer your question. Responsibility, walking in a just way, doing what's right, but having empathy with your colleagues at work, loving your neighbor, even when they don't love you. We're called to love God, and love your neighbor. If we do that pretty good, America would be, we always say, oh, make America great again. But when it really gets down to it, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Those that are closest to you, as well as those that meet you on the street, or on the train, or on your job. People know it worked. Oh yeah, here's a major thing for dad, integrity, honesty. Now notice the things that I'm saying. It's not a class or a color or a position. These characteristics or definitions of whatever I'm trying to say, it's the same for all of us, from the White House to the outhouse. You show me a good father in any position. Coach Landry was that way. That man is a football coach. Oh, my goodness. What the NFL do is doing right now, he was so innovative as a player, then a coach. There are many great coaches. Well, just a few. But even how he carried himself, and he had a attitude, uh, or uh, I don't have the definition right now, but discernment with players, with coaches, and all of his coaches were not Christians. I watched him bring heathens on his staff that could coach well, but because of his influence and the character within the building and the organization, I saw those guys become men of integrity and did not want to embarrass Coach Landry, did not want to embarrass the organization. And even when he was fired after 29 years, the way he carried himself and cleaned out his office 
And he said, Carrie, it's a business. A new owner comes, he wants his people. And I watched how he walked through that. And I probably traveled with him more um, than most people because we traveled the country speaking, sharing at Fellowship Christian Athlete events, business meetings. And he was, I, I can't believe that he felt so safe with me because when he couldn't say it, I would say it. Here's what Coach Landry is describing concerning urban kids. And when we would speak to donors, he would, like, carry a, share the story with them what's happening. And since our time back in the 80s, there are young men that I knew as teenagers there in the National Football Hall of Fame. They have won Heisman trophies. I can't believe it. And I sat and told these kids, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to Texas A&M. You're going to go to SMU. You're going to go to Notre Dame. They're recruiting you. Here's how you carry yourself. I saw it with Tom Landry, saw it with my dad, and that's what happened. But responsibility, um, and guys here in our Hope House, our residential facility here at the church, one of our most successful ministries of guys getting out of prison, off drugs, alcohol, and I talk to them, speak to them every Tuesday at 6.30 a.m. And I ask them, what do you want to talk about? I got verses. I could talk all day like I'm doing here, and I'm going to shut up. But... And guys, like, how, how do I be responsible, Pastor Casey? You know, how can I get a wife like yours, like Mrs. Casey? And she runs our children's ministries here at the church. She's brilliant. I know as I've come back after 20-some um, years, I was a lead pastor years ago. And I said, we'll retire. We'll move to Chicago. We're not going to move to Florida. But we're right off in the sunset. So here we are. I know they're excited we're back, and I thought they liked me, but they're really like, oh, wow, we got Mrs. Casey. She's brilliant. She can figure this out. So anyway, but these guys, I wish I could get a bride like Mrs. Casey. I said, you're right. I said, that's why I get to do what I do. I walk the two blocks here to speak to y'all. I'm excited about it. I don't have to worry about her. She'll, she'll let me know when I get, have to get on a Zoom call. <laughs> All of that. Two o'clock. And so here we are. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. Um, well, let's, uh, let's talk about being a dad. What, is it, what are the characteristics of a good dad, the goal of fathering, um, when yeah. you reflect on that? Right. What we found through research when I was at the National Center for Fathering that three things clearly come out of, and that's in my book, uh, Championship Fathering, clearly come out as we've done the research of thousands of dads, is that number one is that they're loving. They love the child and they love the child's mother. And even if they're not married to her or divorced, they respect the mother. It clearly comes out that we, we, we can't get along or we, we, we're not going to be married, but they will respect that mom and they will love that mother through the children. And the man's heart, even with secular research and discussion about a father, secular, if you study it enough and go deep enough, it will turn the heart right to the heavenly father, you see. 
of how God treats us. He does not treat us. He does not treat Carrie Casey the way I deserve to be treated by my brokenness, arrogance, lack of integrity at times, um, all of that. But the three tenets are they love, a good dad loves their children. He coaches the children, not just on the field. A good coach is Tony Dungy, the great Hall of Fame coach, as I stated, he's a dear friend. He's been through a lot. He had a son that committed suicide. We're buddies. I was there. We went there. I was at the funeral. I was there with him. He's been in my home. He come, we're, we're, He's six days older than me. I'm October the 12th. He's October the 6th. I may have said that earlier. But he said a good coach is involved and aware of his players. And he's totally right. Um, Coach Landry, I watched him when a guy struggled with drugs. He said, Kerry, um, go get him. Get him back here. Because they don't want to meet that head They don't want to go in that head coach's office. Mm -hmm. Or they got a girl pregnant. They're thinking, oh, this is the end of the world. But Coach Landry knows from being a man and a gentleman that you're going to go through things. I forget how many missions he went on in his airplane in World War II bombing missions. But he said, Kerry, um, it's like the pendulum swings back and forth in life. It's like life repeats itself in things. I'm like, wow, what is he saying? And I've gotten older, he's right. But you love your children, you coach them, not just on the field, but just like my children, just like my dad, when I, uh, he had Parkinson, he had not gone into care center yet. He was kind of forgetting things at times. I called home. I was getting ready to buy a vehicle. I needed a larger car. The family was growing. Went to the dealership, picked out a car, and the owner sat behind the desk. My bride and I were sitting on the other side of the desk. And I said, can I use your phone for a moment? He said, sure. I said, it's a long distance call. And that was back then, long distance call. So I called my dad and I called and I said, hey, mom. I said, how is dad doing today? Is he okay? He said, oh yeah, he's on the, he's on the right page today. He's in there shaving. <laughs> because he at Parkinson's was beginning to uh, progress. But he said, and he got on the phone, he said, hey, son, how's it going? What's going on? Um, why are you calling this time of day? And I said, Pop, I'm getting ready to make a decision. I want to get this new car. And here's what's going on with it. And here's what blah, blah, blah. He says, is it brand new? Is it used? How many miles does it have on it? Well, he's asking all the questions. And he said, I said, what do you think I should do, Dad? He said, well, son, if I were you, <laughs> I love Pop. He didn't make the decision. I want him to tell me. Come on, Dad. You're a dad. Be a leader. Tell me. But he, he basically, he didn't say it, but he's like, well, you're a grown man. You know how much money you have. You know what you need. 
Melanie's brilliant and you're married to her, just ask her. But she really wanted this nice van because we had a new baby. We had the other three children. So he said, if I was you, I would wait. That's what he told me. He didn't crush me, but he said, if I were you. So I said, thanks, Dad. Love you. I'll talk to you later. Click. And I told the gentleman across the desk, I can't buy the car today. But in fact, the way we got to, to this dealership is that they said, whatever type of car you got, no matter how much of a piece of junk it is, we'll give you $3,000 or something like that towards your new car. And I'm thinking, wow, if we can get rid of this little uh, Toyota that I let people use it and they dented it and seats are ripped, and, but it ran good. So anyway, I had other cars. But then I told the gentleman, I said, I can't buy it today. I may be back. He said, uh-uh. Mr. Casey, I got to sell this car to you today. You better get this car before somebody else. <laughs> we drove off of that lot and we had to stop on the side of the road because my bride was sad. She cried and I consoled her on the side of that road because she wanted that van. I said, babe, I just don't have a piece. What daddy said was right. I'm, making, I'm taking too long to tell the story, but long story short, within a week and a half or two weeks, a wonderful Christian, it became a Christian man, was not a Christian then, but he called me and said, Pastor Casey, I am buying me a new Mercedes, and I want to give you my old Volvo which is a great car, but I'm thinking, I don't want somebody else's junk. But he drove that car to our church. And when I saw that car, it had 60,000 miles on it, with back then a phone in the car, very nice. And he said, I want you to have this. He gave it to me. I drove it home and I said, baby, your new car is out in front of the house. It was loaded, beautiful. And she said, where? And she, I said, right there. She said, what, that Volvo? I said, yeah, dear, that's your new car. My kids were in high school and junior high. Then. They drove, each one of them drove the car to college. It lasted and ran and ran. But dad's not so brilliant. But fathers give you wisdom. They give you leadership. And comes what comes with leadership is security. It be, there's peace there. There's confidence. And when a father receives that from their dad, and when it's transferred through the thread, of the family, of the community, and your sphere of influence, we have a better chance of winning the championship because you have the same values for success. And I see the bookshelf behind you. 
Those books are there for a reason. It tells a story of when people walk into your area of work and influence and the values that you have. You won't have to talk as long as I do, but I always tell people being black and Baptist and a preacher, you could be here all day. But anyway, <laughs> but it says something. The plaques and the certificates and diplomas I see on your wall. They're not there just for show, but it does tell a story. My dad worked at the VA hospital, Veterans Administration, for 30 years, and then he retired. But I did not know the depth of who he was, the real depth, until he died and we went to retrieve his effects out of our home where I grew up, <clears throat> where he and mom lived. As I went through his papers, there were accommodations from the chief of the hospital. But when dad was going home on his lunch break one day, half an hour away from where he worked to get lunch, he bought it sometimes. But he was driving home and he saw a gentleman walk, walking down the street and he stopped the car. Can I give you a ride? And the gentleman's like, yes. And my dad drove a little bit. Then he drove down another street and drove down another street. And then he was back at the VA hospital because there had been a patient. <laughs> that had changed his clothes, put on some other clothes. He was trying to get away, but dad was discerning and drove him back. Saved the hospital, great embarrassment, from great embarrassment, if something would have happened. That was one. And I have that paperwork to this day. Mr. Casey, thank you so very much for da 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 stamp of approval, VA hospital, my dad had that. When Mr. Casey talked a man down from hanging himself in the locker room there at the VA, it's just ways he was gifted that, yeah, Mr. Johnson, and I saw him when my brother and I would go with him to pick up his check on certain days when we were little boys. And he said, stay close to me, guys. Because some of the guys were, they, they were, you know, they were some of them, they were sick men, mentally, physically, spiritually. But anyway, so one thing that really helped me, and I will try to be more pointed in my uh, answers, but the way he addressed those men that were patients. Hello, Mr. Johnson, how are you today? He spoke to them with great dignity and discussion. He did not talk down to them. as He didn't rush in and get his paycheck that day to rush out. But, you know, Mr. Martin, what's going on today? How are you doing? How are you feeling? And 
Because some people will, let me give you your medication and you go on and sit over on that bench and daydream and I'll see you when we need to bring you in and get you whatever. Anyway, I'm done. What's uh, uh, another question. What about somebody who doesn't have a father to learn from about being a father? How do, how would you recommend somebody, you know, fill the gap, so to speak? If they haven't had that experience of having a good father, how in turn can they become a good father? Mm -hmm. Well, most things we learn, in, even in football, you have plays that draw up on the board, but then you walk through the plays, you walk through your position, and it's different uh, levels of what you do as you prepare. NFL teams are preparing right now for Sunday. And there's certain things that you go through that week to prepare and to be successful on Sunday. Um, so it is with the father. I watched daddy get up early and how he would read. He read newspaper, read the Bible, and he would read a proverb. I tell people, if you're rushing, read a proverb. If you're not rushing, read a proverb. Read every thing you can in the book, go to Bible studies, but read a proverb. It'll give you wisdom. And um, like today's the 10th of, of December, read Proverbs 10, simple. It's going to be something in there that will give you thoughts in terms of how you're supposed to carry yourself that day. Uh, what was your question again now? Well, uh, if you haven't had a good father, yes, how, yes, yes. how can you mm -hmm. fill the gap in your own life? Mm -hmm. And by the way, you're going to, uh, a person that's sincere and honest, they will gravitate toward um, success, integrity. I don't believe people wake up really wanting to be an alcoholic or want to be a womanizer or want to be a uh, person that is not prudent uh, or, uh, but or to be lazy. But I must say this though, as I study scripture and, and things, men, believe it or not, have a tendency to be lazy. Women, um, I have this book, uh, How to Pray for Your Wife. And I, I, I journal every day. And it's 31 days in there. But it talks about women are entrepreneurs, bargain hunters, what they really desire is uh, security and things of that nature. But we as men can have a tendency, excuse me, to be, to be lazy or just do things the way I want to do it, or maybe do it halfway. That's why we have to be, that's why the father is there to Jesus' father was a carpenter, and he worked in that area as a young lad growing up and things of this nature. And the way he performed his duties naturally on this earth was, uh, was a outgrowth of what he saw his father do. And one thing happened as well, and I was touching on it. Every morning, Jesus got up while it was still dark outside. And while it was early, and he went to a solitary place, solitude. He was quiet. He was still. And as Christians, as I do that 
in the morning. I've never heard an audible voice from God, but God speaks very clearly. Carrie, you need to go to Melanie and apologize for day before yesterday, not just what you said, but how you said it to her. And as I'm still, as it states in scripture, Psalm 46 and 10, be still and know that I'm God. When we don't rush. I tell coaches this. I tell NFL locker rooms, some people are like, man, you must be crazy. We're in a fast business here. If you don't win in three years, you're going to get fired. <laughs> and that's okay. It's okay to get fired in the NFL because how much money they sign you as far as a contract, you got that money when you get that money when you leave. <laughs> you may not have to ever coach again. But learning that. Every child needs a father, grandfather, notice that, or a father figure. There are many great father figures. We talk about loving, coaching, modeling, but then we talk about the in, investing, the fourth tenet that we came up with is that influence a child in your neighborhood that doesn't have a dad. Be close to a family that can trust you enough to take their daughter, the mother to allow you to take the daughter to the father-daughter dance that doesn't have a dad. It will bless her. But naturally these days you must deal with integrity and have trust and things of that nature. But then who is the young man? That's what my dad did that brought other children into his sphere of influence with his two boys, riding to games together, mm -hmm. getting an ice cream cone. So, but doing that, but then men that come together. Now, here's the thing also. Men do not do well by themselves. I don't care how much money you got. I don't care what color of your skin. I don't care how many degrees you have. You have to, we carry Casey. I just speak for me. I have to have accountability. If I'm not with other men, if I'm not checking in with my bride regularly and sitting down and letting men ask me tough questions, what are you looking at? What are you reading? Where are you hanging out? What are you doing with your money? This type of thing. Just a few questions. Um, you have to have that or we will stray, you see. If a guy keeps showing up to meetings late, something's going on. Not only with him, but it disrespects the team. And hearing what we need to hear and doing what we need to do. And you find, you show me, and it's not just being didactic or um, just for the sake of doing it. I tell young people, I said, it, it says a lot when you show up on time and when you're prepared. Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That's just bottom line. Usually I'm gifted enough to do what I need to do, but if I don't prepare, and I did not know how you looked or anything, but I was praying for you the past few weeks because we won't have this conversation. And I want the conversation uh, not just to go the way I want it to go, but Lord, 
may our discussion honor you. And it talks about in scripture, may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. As we do that, we get that serious bang for our buck. Carrie, mm-hmm. well, um, let's let's turn to marriage and uh, talk about husbands. What's it take to be a uh, good husband? How should a man view his role in his family and his marriage? Mm-hmm. It goes a lot along with leadership, yes, but understanding who you are and whose you are. The role of a man and the role of a husband. When you make that commitment and the promises that you made at that altar, who giveth this that valuable possession that was given away? The wedding doesn't start until the well, the pastor will come out of the closet, dress nice, smell good, like the groom and the best man, and you stand there. But nothing starts until that bride <laughs> is ready to start. I don't care who it is. I don't care how much money the groom has or anything. Until that bride is ready to come, nothing starts. The pastor, I do not, as a pastor, as a minister, um, I have no authority to say, will the congregation please stand until that bride comes down the aisle? Then she comes down the aisle. She does not come down the aisle briskly or rushing. She's going to take her time. And the backs of the congregation are to her. But I have not been in a wedding in all my years that the congregation did not turn around to see the bride, if they could, before she gets down the aisle. They want to see. And her daddy walks her or someone important in her life walks. Then you get to that altar. I'm answering this question concerning husbands. But then... It's the moment of truth. Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I, then I said, place her right hand into um, Tom's right hand, or whoever the groom is. And I said, you can take your seat. Because he's giving away a most valuable possession of he and his wife. It's a valuable transaction taking place. He is going to become what you ask me, husband. What are some things? Well, we've taken him through boatloads of counseling. Where do you want to go on vacation? How much money do you want to make? What type of car? You're saying, what? You ask him that? I'm not. Yes, for weeks and months, for them to have the vision together that they feel they're compatible. And you're not just loving because love changes in your marriage. The way I love my bride today is not like how I loved her on that wedding day. 
And my parents told me this, especially my mother. She said, and we got married at 21. And she said, and she cried, but she said, I understand, son. You love her in a different way. You want to show her all of your love. All of the rights and privileges of marriage are there. But as unto the Lord. So we, how do we do it? So the daddy sits down. They go through the vows. They make that commitment. But that commitment to God of how he made marriage before he ever made the church. The commitment of marriage. Adam and Eve, all this. Um, that's why it says, and I tell people this, and it's not that you focus on it, but God, and it's not the end of the world, but God hates divorce. He was saying what he hates. He doesn't hate the individuals. He doesn't hate um, marriage. He hates divorce. It's a brokenness of that covenant that there are, let me see, how do you say it? There are blessings. Research shows that people that are married and stay married, they make more money. They are happier. And people are like, what? Because people just think these days, all right, we'll get married, it's gonna be pretty good. Then we'll divorce and marry somebody else, start over again, get a new car, trade her in for a new and younger model. Heck no. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't see all my kids and be married to my bride this Christmas. COVID was one thing, but we're all gonna be together in Kansas City. And just being together makes it, but it's through the seed of Melanie and I. When I see my bride being that mother, being um, that grandmother, Oh my goodness, I couldn't pull her away from it with her, a team of wild horses and she couldn't do it with me. And so that husband of where we're a good father, a husband provides and he protects. Okay. And, and women want security. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, I know you've written about marriage being a witness to others. Talk about that a little bit, mm -hmm. that it's not just a private relationship, but there's really a public aspect to it. Yes. On our wedding, um, traveling to our wedding, our, our honeymoon destination, we, we were in North Carolina. We stopped in a town to, we could not make the drive all the way to where, we, we're on Myrtle Beach from High Point, North Carolina. So we stopped and before we got to the hotel, but here I am with this beautiful woman. Here I am with this girl that loves me. Here I am with this girl that I love. We stopped at Dairy Queen. I haven't been there for years, but we sat there and ate. I don't remember what we ate, but we got something sweet. But we just started discussing what we had just gone through in the way of a wedding ceremony. And we were just talking. It was kind of like, we're buddies. We've known each other for uh, two years. Um, I love you. You love me. 
But we began to talk to some of the interest, intricacies of, and we were so excited about being married. Yeah, you want to, as they say, you make love, you own your honeymoon. Hey, man, it's fun. But the real thought that came out at that um, meeting um, at that Dairy Queen was we wanted our marriage to be a witness. Uh, God brought us together. We had this privilege that we trust each other. We love each other. We believe in, in each other. We need each other. All of, and it was more than that. And that what we are experiencing, we want other people to experience it because I literally, and she literally felt the depth of that great covenant of marriage and that, God, and that God loved us enough that he gave us the privilege to experience it. And it was good. And that's why in Proverbs 18, 22, he says, he who findeth a wife findeth a good thing. But here's the great part, the icing on the cake and obtains favor from the Lord. I have favor. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you asked me that. I'm gonna tell you why. A few weeks ago at church, morning worship, I'm standing up, I'm giving the welcome that day, not preaching, but no, 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 not the welcome. I was doing prayer time. And so we allow people to come and stand in a line Brief prayer request. Don't talk long as Pastor Casey, but share your prayer request. We're going to pray for you. So people can come to the mic, pray for my sister who's sick and has cancer, and I'm sad, and we write it down, and we get a long list of people, and then we pray. But um, the way I'm wired, I'm, it's hard for me to be the scribe and the prayer and everything else. I said, sweetheart, would you come up here for a minute? my bride knows what I'm going to do. I said, baby, would you write down what um, everyone's name is and what they're saying? And then I'm going to, we'll pray together. And so, and she does, and I know she's sitting there like, you know, I don't like being up here and everything else. But anyway, so she comes and she snuggles up to me. She's leaning she on the rostrum, she's writing them, and she's a retired teacher. She can write so good, and I can see it, and we can pray. But so we did. And, and after that, she stepped down and she went to go be with the children's church. But there was a young lad that's in the after school program, little boy. I think he's in first grade, little chubby guy. And he just, she told me, She's, he's one of her favorite, but he said, Miss Casey, what, did, why didn't you wave at me? And she said, what are you talking about? I said, I was over there on the side and I was waving and you didn't see me. He wanted her to see him so much, but she didn't see him. So just yesterday, I walked by with a friend by the learning center where the after-school kids are. And Melanie uh, came to me and she said, you see my little buddy over there? I'm like, yeah. She said, 
he asked the question uh, the other day. I forgot to tell you, but he uh, he said, "Mrs. Casey, is Pastor Casey your husband?" And she said, "Yes." And she said, "He just like I knew it." I, I'm thinking like, well, two plus two, like Casey, Casey. <laughs> but he just he was just so excited. Pastor Casey is Mrs. Casey's husband, and he figured it out. And so now I'm like cool to him because he loves Mrs. Casey. And, and so you're talking marriage, but people want to be loved and people really do want to love. People in our culture, creatures that God made really don't want to wake up and have hate in their heart. Because if you have to wake up and have hate in your heart, as I look at you of a different color and everything, we have the same blood and we're made by God. And no baby comes in this world in any other way except the way every other baby comes into the world. But in our culture today, it's like, hate that person. Don't like people that don't look like you or they don't have as much money as you, or you don't have much money as them, or you didn't go to this school, or you didn't, and this type of thing. Now, all of the reasons for us to hate or to have division, if you go down that path, you're going to have to work pretty hard often because you're going to see somebody that's different in all of that. Now, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, I believe it is. But here's the thing. God wanted marriage to show the world what heaven's going to be like. He said he's coming back for his bride. Again, he didn't say he's coming back for the groom. He calls us his bride because a bride is supposed to be cherished, nurtured, provided with security. But we've gotten it backwards where, woman, you serve me. Go get my food. Go buy the groceries, cook the groceries, clean up the dirty dishes. Walk behind me. Open your own door. I saw how my dad looked at my, I saw how my mother looked at my dad when he was in the casket, when he passed. And she just rubbed his hand. And oh boy, you done left me. <laughs> And my brother and sister and I, we sit over in the corner of the room where they had, uh, where we first viewed his remains. But we just watched how we became like little kids again. And she was doing business in the Holy Spirit with dad. <laughs> but she didn't say anything arrogant. But I talked to older ladies, older men that their spouse goes on. And they, and believe it or not, my mother died eight months to the day of when my daddy died, October the 12th, on my 45th birthday. 
She had a heart attack. But anyway, um, she missed him. But um, the, hu the husband part, though, give freedom for your children and the bride to experience the love of God in others. Don't be a tough taskmaster. Create a spirit in your home for there to be freedom. The three bedroom home that we had was one bathroom, kitchen and living room. I've never had a home that small in my marriage, except an apartment, married student housing the first time we met, when we first got married. But we never, I don't remember anybody standing in line to use the restroom. I don't remember anybody complaining, eating our meals in the kitchen with no dining room, that we had homes with dining rooms, everybody got their own bedroom, two closets in your bedroom, garages with heated garages. You go down to the list. And... But because, what mom and dad created in marriage, and daddy knowing his role, and performing it pretty good, mother felt secure. And we as children didn't need a lot under the tree because there was so much more going on 364 more days of the year. Mm -hmm. It blows me away. I, uh, mm -hmm. Good. Well, um, let's turn to um, church and what, in your opinion, what the church could be doing to help marriages and families. One, one survey found that 80% of churches spend zero ministry dollars on marriage. So that tells me, you know, where you're investing is where your priorities are. And what, what is your take on what the church could or should be doing um, to help strengthen families, marriages, you know, fathering? In hearing you say that, it, it really blesses me because it is a fact. We take it very seriously here, and that's one of my roles. My bride and I, we head up the marriage ministry, we head up the parenting side, championship fathering as well, naturally working with kids. I cannot believe in coming back to this church, not the lead pastor, but the fun I'm having, the joy I'm having, and the impact that I'm having. I never knew that I would be in the fathering space and become an authority on the research and teaching from the White House down. I never knew it. Marriage with President Bush, um, fathering with uh, President Obama, We must, well, anything you do, it's going to be a price and there's going to be a cost. The church 
and I'm the church because I'm part of the church. We are cheating our congregants as well as our community, as well as our state, as well as our country and this world. When we think we can win a championship and don't focus on the right plays we must run, of how you love your bride, how you love your children, how we're supposed to be a witness. The church is the major uh, entity, organization, or whatever to get the greatest learning, I believe. Um, one of the reasons that we say the black church, but I'm going to tell you this, during the civil rights days, even the African-American community was stronger because the church was the major focal point for education Com, uh, communication and what we must do in order to deal with healthcare, education, economics. But when you do not have families coming to church, communicating what's going on in the community, um, well, bottom line is you don't tell people who to vote for, but to allow people to be intelligent enough to make intelligent decisions. You see, our church, we're not telling anybody who to vote for, and we're not putting money into voting, but we want people, God wants us to be intelligent. He made us the most intelligent creation of his creation, men and women. He made us in his image. Didn't do it with a dog, didn't do it with a cat, fish of the sea, birds of the air. You can go all through all the creatures he created. But we're the ones that are responsible for the intellect, intelligence that can um, get on the scale with him because he speaks to us in a way that he does not speak to any other animal. Now, that being said, though, the church is the entity that you can do it in a more, how do you say it, not cheaper way, but in a more uh, greater stewardship way of getting the bang for your buck, not paying money. Don't wait till you're in trouble and you're going to a counselor, and I appreciate them, I'm a counselor, but that you're paying money for what the church is supposed to be doing. And when you're injured on the field, they run on the field. I always use these sports analogies, but they run on the field. And before they even touch your body, they're asking you, how are you feeling? What's hurting? And they can look in your face and all of this. If they think it's something in the way they saw the play, if it was like your neck or something like that, they will not move you. But if it's like a knee, they're gifted, they can touch your knee and feel and feel and feel. That's what the church is supposed to do. 
you lose your job or you're dealing with mental struggles or illness, um, we can counsel work with you, but many times you don't need to go and pay big bucks, but then we can say, yeah, you probably should get some counseling probably once a week, once a month, once a year, whatever. You have a checkup and just like health wise. And so, but that church is an entity that I firmly believe that you can, uh, we have to allow it to be a safe place, a comfortable place um, that you can go. I asked my bride, I said, baby, do you, do you feel I need some counseling? And she's honest with me. Yeah, you probably need to talk to pastor about this one. My dad, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. I never forget it was questions I had for Pop as I was growing, being called into ministry, moving along in life. He said, son, you probably need to go talk to Pastor Braxton. He was seminary trained, sharp man, great guy. He said, you probably need to go talk to him. He wasn't embarrassed to say, son, I can counsel you. I can talk to you. I'm your daddy. I know you better than most folks. But you'd probably be good if you go over and talk to him. Because that's what the church does. Marriage, sickness, fears, um, jobs. Should I do this job or do that job? People that can look at you, that can know your giftedness and tendencies. And so that's what marriage, oh my goodness. And so we're doing things here at our church in this inner city. And with technology now, excuse me, we video um, our fellowship times and I throw them on social media and, I, I, and I'm, I'm not good with some camera and all that, but I caught a clip a few weeks ago, put it on uh, Instagram and Facebook. There are people that are calling and apologizing for not being at the fellowships because everything else is so important. <laughs> I mean, do you have to pay? And then I just thought about it. Yeah, my bride said, baby, we need to take some money out of the budget for championship fathering and give everybody a gift card. I said, well, let me put that in the email and say you'll get a gift card if you, if you come. She said, no, 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 no. Don't do it on the front end. They'll hear about it on the back end. So membership has its advantages. So play the lottery with the church. <laughs> Don't say that. No. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's uh, turn to a, kind of a last uh, area of legacy. Mm -hmm. uh, the role, the importance that plays. Uh, I know when you f reflect on your life, what do you want to be known for? And, and then also maybe some things, well, I wish I would have done this differently lessons you've learned and what you want to leave. I would have slowed down more um, to rest. That's what I'm doing a lot now. I say that, but I'm on jets every now and then, but conferences and all of that. I hate that we had COVID 
But that really slowed my bride and I down. And it's just us. And I'm a diabetic, by the way. And you have to keep a balance. The way you eat, your rest, and all of that. I've been a diabetic since I was 30. I'm 66. I'm doing well. But I could do better always. But some terrible things could have happened to me. But God has kept me. But I wish that I would have rested more, be still more, as much as you study anyway for sermons, talks, raising your kids. That's, that's a regret. Um, I wish I wouldn't have taken myself too seriously. I wish I wouldn't have tried to, I don't think, I don't know if the word is try, but some people, they look at your resume and they say, Wow, man, you've done a lot of things. Wow, you did this. You were a chaplain with the Olympic Games. You've been to Seoul, Korea. You worked at the White House. You, uh, man, you were in the movie, Remember the Titans. I can go down the list of some things that you never could have told me had any potential in happening when you would look at my report card when I was a kid. <laughs> And, but as I tell people many, not many times, but I tell them, I said, I'm not a racist, but I'm going to tell you something. When I went to the seventh grade, they took me in a guidance counselor's office with four or five other teachers. Everyone was white. And they said, we're going to have to put um, Kerry in slow learners because he's not doing good with his, on his report card, which was true. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, when report cards came out that day, I was depressed. I hated riding home on the school bus because everybody's celebrating what they made. And oh, my goodness, there's no way I'm going to ever get a girlfriend because of what, when they know what my grades are. So I just couldn't wait to get off the bus, run home, let my parents sign it, bring it back and try again. But this day, they said, we need to put Kerry in slow learners. In the first through the third grade was all African-American school. First through the 12th grade, school kids were in this one school back in the day. But in the first grade, it was the first and second grade in one room with one teacher. So I'm not real, I'm not the brightest rock in the, in the bag, but I needed personal attention. And I could not get that those first three years. When we integrated, it got better, but I had missed some things and I had to work overtime. My parents always worked with me, never gave up on me. So here we are in the seventh grade. Yeah, put him in slow learners. He can do woodwork. He can do shop class, work on cars, but... If I would have done that, I would have not been on the track to play sports. 
and I love sports. I was an athlete. Now, here's the thing. There was a teacher sitting in that room with those other counselors. And they said, yeah, that's probably what we should do. So here's this one lady spoke up. Notice I told you everybody in the room was white. Like I said, I'm not a racist, but I'm just painting the picture. She, Mrs. Foster, she said, no, do not put Kerry Casey in slow learners. He is smart and he is brilliant. And I'm sitting there thinking like, and I'm looking over at her like, is something wrong with her? Don't you see the statistics on that card? <laughs> she said, he can, he, he, she said, let me work with him and then we will make the decision. <laughs> she took me to her class and she put her finger in my nose, oh my nose, my big nose. And she said, Carrie Casey, you can get this because you are a very good athlete and you know the plays and blah, blah. If you can do that, you can get anything in this school. And I'm like, wow. No one ever said it like that. Then she said, if you, what do you want to do one day? You know, I sound like play pro football. And I'm, good. I'm always saying that's my goal in life. Like it's the end of the world. And I'm so glad that I didn't put all my uh, eggs in that basket because even if you're great, I got all the statistics. I speak to these players. I talk to them. I say, all right, a good athlete, how long? is their NFL career. A good athlete, if you if you are a good athlete, how long will you probably play in the NFL? What do you think it is? If you're good, what do you think? The life expectancy of a pro athlete, pro football player. What do you think? Uh, just a few years, probably. Oh, yeah. All right. So some of the guys, I speak to these rookies, they're like, seven years, 10 years, 15. I say, try if you're good. Now, some of you, have been drafted, but you hadn't played yet. So we don't know if you're good or not. But if you are good, you're going to play three and a half years. Wow. Now, how do you, young man? 22. And I said, oh, really? Do you have your degree? No. All right. 23, 24, <laughs> 25, 26. I said, I got four frames. We're going to give you four years. You'll be 26 and you won't have a job. Mm -hmm. You got to off season, go back and get your degree. Because you are not, and even when you are out of ball, your body's going to tell you, you can still play. And that which fueled you all of these years, you can't do it legally. It's, I mean, you got to, but anyway, so that being the case, Mrs. Foster worked me like you wouldn't believe. But little did I know her husband would become my high school coach. <laughs> we, hey, check this out. The coach and I are friends to this day. We speak at least once a month. I became one of the greatest players in the history. I'm in the Hall of Fame in my high school. I mean, in my hometown. Please come in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure do, Fred. I'm sorry. Oh, no, we don't. I'm sorry. Forgive me. 
Um, this is one of the greatest men in the world that just walked in here. But anyway, um, Mrs. Foster, I went home one time for a banquet speaking or something, and she had dementia to the point that she was in a wheelchair, that she didn't know what was going on in life. Her husband would take her. She was an athlete herself back then, what years ago. But I grabbed her hands, this white lady, held her hands. I kissed her forehead. And I said, Mrs. Foster, if there's any way possible that you can hear me, I want to thank you for the chance you took on Carrie Casey. I've been privileged to travel the world because of what you did when I was in the seventh grade. I hope you can hear me. And she, a few years later, she passed and went on to be with the Lord. But her husband, anytime he can tell that story. He tells it. And that man, he wrote books on football and how you play the game. And he's close to 90 years of age. But that's what that lady did. I've had a number of people that have modeled for me what it is to be a husband and a father. We had that on our block. We lived in a cul-de-sac, 13 homes. But the men, I saw it modeled. where they took care of their homes. I'm looking at it. I, out of the 13 homes as I look at them, every one of the homes had a father and a mother in the home as I grew up. And my white coach, it's been books written about it, and I've written, written forwards and all that, but I talked about my high school coach, how every year they would have a special night called Dad's Night. And every one of the players would have their father, grandfather, or father figure would run out the locker room with their dad and they would have the number on the front 
of the jacket or the or the back of the jacket. And my dad, he had number 31 and number 76, my brother. He was a junior, I was a senior. And for two years, my daddy ran out of that locker room with his two boys. Kerry and Corwin Casey and their dad. Ralph Casey. And he ran out on the field and we ran right beside our dads. I hadn't thought of that in a while. But I look back on it, I ran on the field with my father and my brother. I can remember it, I just, he was running on the field with his seed. There are things that he could not do that we had the privilege to do in life. But he did not complain about what he didn't have or what he could not do. But he modeled for us what it means to be a man a husband, a father, or a grandfather. He lived a great life. And that's what I am desiring to do personally, professionally, and with other men, and to please God the Father. Yes. Wow. Thank you. So kind of the summary then, uh, what is your like, what would, uh, when all is said and done, what do, what do you desire to say your legacy is? What would that be? I only wish, but you can't do it because when you die and they give the congregation, you have the privilege to come and give remarks, but please hold them to two minutes. And if you don't, <laughs> and if you go longer, we're going to come down to that mic and pull you away. I would love to be here to see what people would say. <laughs> I can't say it here, but boy, we had a funeral this week, man. And some of the things that were said, we were like, huh? But anyway, I would, that, I guess just thinking out loud, um, Carrie Casey was a 
wonderful man that loved God. He loved his love, loved God, loved his bride. A decent husband and father, grandfather, and friend to many. Um, I'm so thankful that I was privileged to live out my dream. You couldn't tell me I was not going to be in the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and some other things, but the way God led my life, where I had a knee injury and <clears throat> I came back and played. They say you'll never play again, but I worked hard, I came back. Couldn't run as fast and different things. I'm waving at some brothers walking by my window here. Um, but I can honestly say I have lived out my dream. But as you read scripture, though, man that is born of a woman has but a short time to live <laughs> and is full of misery. <laughs> and oh my goodness, I was just watching um, Bob Dole's. Uh, homegoing today at the National Cathedral. I had the privilege to um, sharing communion there with the church one day when I was there and they invited me. And But in that place where a number of, uh, my funeral would not be there. But I just cried when they walked in and reading the scriptures and they had all their garments on and the gentleman was reading the scripture of what the Lord says about life and death. And it's the same things that my dad used to tell me and my, and my mother, yes, and then my pastor. The things that I have learned, it's really coming to fruition and it's true. I used to wonder, Dad, how can you say that? Why would you say that? What's the big deal? Why are you telling us to remember our creator? Why you? He speaks louder now from the grave than when he was here. <laughs> I don't understand it. And I can hear his voice. But Billy Graham used to say this. Oh, one great book that Billy Graham wrote. He wrote a number of, of them. But this one book, oh, you got to get it. You must get it. Uh, it's entitled Nearing Home. Nearing Home. Billy Graham. Very easy read. It's a hardback. But he talked about missing Ruth, his bride who passed before him. And But anyway. He said, when you hear one day that Billy Graham has died, he said, don't believe it. <laughs> he said, I will be living more after you hear those words than any time I walked on this earth. I love it. And so all of this is good. But the thing about it, 
of what you have discussed with me today. And I'm honored that you would allow me to ramble and I'm not rambling, but to express a few thoughts. Because this life is not all that there is. And you have to live long enough as a man of God, a husband, father, grandfather, to gain that wisdom to help up to, to help raise up the next generation. And when you have the fathers in marriage. we will have a greater chance of winning a championship than having the greatest arsenal in the world in which to protect our country or to keep someone from invading our home. The tough neighborhood we live in There are murders, we do the funerals, and people have been shot on my block. But I feel unbelievably safe in where we are because of who we are and whose we are. And literally are protected by folks that don't even know us that I've heard Don't mess with them. That's Pastor Casey. That's Mrs. Casey. Don't touch their house. Don't touch their possessions. Now, things can happen. Satan is a crazy guy because he's a defeated foe. But also, he, he can't tell the truth. He's a liar. He's not God. That's why Lucifer got kicked out of heaven. But the point I'm making is, I can come to my car in my back driveway. There are people that walk down that alley that are not dressed the best, don't think the best. You can think all you want to, but hey, Pastor Casey. I'm like, who is this? I don't, have I ever met them? But they know. They would know that you're a Christian by your love. And as I do my best to do that, to help raise my children, grandchildren, and love my neighbor, yeah. But this is not my home, and I can't get too familiar with it. I'm sorry. I'm done. Forgive me. Well, thank you so much for your time, Karius. Great to hear your life story and uh, the wisdom you've gained over the years. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye.